Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open it to Proverbs chapter 2. We're continuing our series in the book of Proverbs. We've called this the beginning of wisdom, and together we are exploring Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 throughout the summer. We spent our first three weeks in Proverbs chapter 1. Today we're going to cover all of chapter 2, but before we get to chapter 2, I just want to pick up on one thing out of chapter 1 that struck me and use that as a bit of a launching point into the study of Proverbs chapter 2. There was a verse near the end of Proverbs 1 that I'd never really paid much attention to before. I've read it many times, but it really struck me with some force as we looked at it last week. Verse 32 of chapter 1 says this, For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. You know, the last half of that verse, or the second half of that verse, is a bit of a surprise. The first half says, the simple are killed by their turning away. We get that. Turning away seems like a very active thing to do. You're making a deliberate choice. You're going this way, and you decide, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to turn away, and you experience all the consequences that come with that. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, that sort of thing. But the second half of the verse warns us about a subtler danger. The complacency of fools destroys them. Complacency, negligence, apathy, they don't seem like they would be all that big of a deal. I mean, if we were writing the verse, we might say the complacency of fools means they won't quite reach all of their goals. Or the complacency of fools means, you know, they're going to have some catching up to do. What the verse says is that the complacency of fools will destroy them. Do you want to know how to destroy your life? You don't have to make a conscious decision to pursue the most foolish course of action you can think of. All you need to do is to be complacent about the things that really matter. A little bit later in Proverbs, we're going to encounter this proverb. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Those verses are telling us that a series of small surrenders, or at least what seems to us to be small surrenders in regard to our work ethic, will end up having huge implications in our lives. This is actually true in every area of our lives. The complacency of fools destroys them. So having said that by way of introduction, let's turn now to Proverbs chapter 2, and I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. This is God's word, and this is what it says. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it As for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield 
to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good, and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Well, this chapter is a call to action. It is the antithesis of complacency. There's an urgency throughout this passage. In fact, in the Hebrew, this entire chapter is just one sentence. You know how it is when you are excited about something and you want to share that. I mean, you skip the punctuation altogether. You sometimes don't even take a breath. That's Proverbs chapter 2. That's the passion which with This father appeals or exhorts his son to listen to his counsel and heed his wisdom. So I want to walk you through this chapter by highlighting three things that we need in order to become wise. If you want to become wise, you need at least these three things. The first thing you need is you've got to have the want to. Now, the want to, if you're not familiar with that term, is something I usually associate with sports. Having the want to in sports means that you don't take any shifts off. Having the want to means that you don't sort of lazily run from base to base. You sprint. Having the want to means that you don't kind of casually wave at a defender as he blows past you and goes to the basket. You defend that basket as if your life depended on it. The want to is about desire. It's about a hunger that drives you to order your life around what matters most. Michael Jordan had the want to. So many of you, maybe six of you, will have watched The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that's on Netflix right now. And the thing that stood out to me as I watched that more than anything else Even more than the painful memories of the Sonics losing to the Bulls in the 95 finals, the thing that stood out to me above everything else was the level of compete that Michael Jordan had. Now, Michael Jordan was blessed with physical characteristics and raw talent, but what made Michael Jordan the goat was the fire that burned in him to be the best. His coaches, his teammates, his opponents, they all said the same thing. Nobody competed like Michael did. He had the want to. Now, we understand that when it comes to things like sports, but listen again to the description of what the want to sounds like 
when it comes to the pursuit of wisdom. Listen to the opening verses. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, find the knowledge God, you cannot read those verses. You cannot hear those verses and not be struck with the simple truth that we will not drift into wisdom. We won't become wise by accident. We will not become wise if we don't get after it, if we don't have the want to. The first half of this chapter is built on an if-then structure. If you receive my words, If you seek it like silver, and then verse 5, then you will understand. Or verse 9, then you will understand. Now, in grammar terms, we refer to these as the protasis and apodosis clauses. The protasis is the if clause or the condition. If you do this, and the apodosis is the result clause. If this condition is met, then this is what you can expect to happen. It's an if-then structure. And here, the protasis clauses point us in two directions. The first one is a heart posture. You receive God's commandments with openness. You make your ear attentive to wisdom. You incline your heart to understand. This is the proper starting place for attaining wisdom. It requires humility and a willingness to learn and grow. Many of you know this already, but the attitude that we bring to any type of learning uh, environment is crucial to what we get out of it. So my status as a bit of a technology guru is, is, is kind of legendary around our office. Everyone talks about it all the time, and, and, and one of the very first purchases we made when we got an office was a photocopier slash printer. And Konica Minolta was kind enough to send out a representative to train our staff on how to use it. I think my first question was, how long is this going to take? Now, the, the presentation or the training lasted about an hour. My eyes glossed over after about 30 seconds. That was the attitude I brought into that learning environment, which is why today the only thing I know how to do on that is push the copy button. And even then, I sometimes need help with it. Look, the attitude that we bring makes a huge difference for what we get out of things. A lot of people have that type of relationship with wisdom. They don't have a heart that's receptive. They don't have ears that are inclined to it or a heart that's inclined to it. Many people approach wisdom the way the fool is later described in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 18, where it says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. First thing we need to do is we need to have a heart posture that is open to receive what it is that God wants to say to us. The second direction, the protasis, or the if clause points us in, is towards the active pursuit of wisdom. Notice again the language of verses 3 and 4. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. 
in verse 3, it's not even just asking for wisdom, but raising your voice, calling out or crying out for it. God, please show me, grant me your wisdom. I was at a sporting event not long ago, uh, back when there were such things. And at one of the breaks, they brought out the t-shirt cannon. If you've ever seen this, you know that the entire stadium goes crazy. Everybody is screaming for this t-shirt to be shot in their direction. There was a grown man about three rows away from me, and he's jumping up and down, over here, calling out for this t-shirt. Imagine if we brought that kind of passion to our desire for wisdom. God, please, grant me your wisdom. I'm calling out, I'm crying out. Would you give it to me? We need that kind of pursuit. Verse 4 then uses the imagery of being in search of precious metals or buried treasures. And you don't have to have been struck with gold fever to know what that looks like. I mean, just think about how focused you become when you're looking to make a major purchase. I mean, you scour every conceivable listing. You hit the refresh button on your browser just to make sure you've got the most up-to-date data. And then you do it all again three hours later. Solomon is telling us, if we want to become wise, wisdom is so valuable that you need to go on an active search to find it. So is that how you approach it? You've got to have the want to. This ties in with the second thing we need if we're going to become wise, and that is you've got to know where to find it. So where do you find wisdom? Now, it was Augustine who famously said that all truth is God's truth. He was right about that. I mean, you can find truth and wisdom in lots of different places, even in unexpected places at times. But I like to remind some of my friends, even a broken clock is right twice a day, Right? You can find wisdom in lots of different places, and sometimes you will stumble upon nuggets of wisdom. You can gain wisdom from observation and experience. You can sometimes glean wisdom from political commentators or financial gurus. But so often their wisdom is mixed with much that is just plain wrong. It's not wise at all. The New Testament, James tells us that there is a difference between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. That type of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. You can find wisdom in lots of places, but where do you find a consistent source of it? Well, listen again to verses 5 and 6. For the Lord, or sorry, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, we've been saying throughout this series that you only become wise, or you can only truly become wise by being in a right relationship with God, the source of wisdom. But notice how it is that God makes his wisdom known to us. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You know, one of the very first things we learn about God in the Bible is that God is a speaking God. Genesis 1 says, Genesis 1 verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. God is a speaking God. He makes himself known in his creation and in our consciences, but God's primary means of revelation 
is in his word or his words. And I think most of us take God's word for granted. We've got Bibles in all shapes and sizes and colors. We have dozens of English translations. We have Bible apps on our phones. We've got downloadable audio Bibles at just the click of a button. When it comes to our access to God's word, We have it in ways past generations of Christians could have only imagined. It seems to me that past generations of Christians had something that we don't have. Hunger for hearing the Word of God. In a book entitled The Wonder of the Word of God, that was written back in 1969, Robert Sumner relates the story of a man in Kansas City who was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured. He lost his eyesight as well as both of his hands. He had had recently become a Christian when the accident happened. And one of his great disappointments was that he could no longer read the Bible. And he heard about a lady in England who had learned to read Braille with her lips. So hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille. But he discovered as he tried that the nerve endings in his lips had been too badly damaged to distinguish the characters. Still, he tried, and one day as he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters, and he could feel them. Like a flash, he realized, I can read the Bible using my tongue. The time Sumner wrote his book, the man had read through the entire Bible four times. See, that's the kind of thing you would do if you believe that it is the Lord who gives wisdom and that it's from his lips or his mouth, knowledge and understanding come. Now, I don't share that with you to try to guilt you into reading your Bible more. I think you don't read your Bible more because you don't believe it contains more wisdom than the echo chamber that is your Twitter feed. I think you don't read your Bible more because you'd rather be entertained than exhorted. I think you don't read your Bible more because deep down you think you're wiser than your creator. You'd rather hear your own voice than God's. Some of you might push back and say, look, I don't read my Bible more because I don't get anything out of it, or I don't read my Bible more because I struggle to understand it. And I get that. I think those things are a common experience. But can I just encourage you not to give up? Can I remind you that there is amazing treasure in this book? Can I encourage you to do what Solomon encourages us to do here? Call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. You might remember the story of the boy Samuel in the temple. Three nights in a row, he heard someone calling his name. And each time he would go and he would wake up Eli the priest and say, What do you want? Finally, after three nights, Eli said, look, I think the Lord is speaking to you. Next time that happens, you ought to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. As a matter of practice, I always try to begin my Bible reading with a prayer like that. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I want to hear what you have to say to me. The way you approach a learning opportunity often has great implications for what you get out of it. I will sometimes pray the prayer of the psalmist. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. 
If I'm being honest before the Lord, I might pray this one. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That's an interesting contrast, isn't it? My heart is often more aligned with material pursuits than with what your word says. Would you incline my heart in the direction of your testimonies, your commands, so that I might hear them and receive them? Even as I read your word, would you just make my heart soft to receive what you might be saying? And isn't that what Jesus, or isn't that why Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear? You want to become wise, you've got to know where to find it. And the place you find wisdom is in God's word. Say one more quick thing about this, because sometimes those of us who advocate for the central role that Scripture ought to play in our lives get accused of bibliolatry, right? We turn the Bible into an idol of sorts. People will say things like, oh, well, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Now, I understand the sentiment. We don't worship a book, but its author. But I think the reality in our day is that we are far more likely to make too little of the Bible than to make too much of it. On top of that, it might just be worth reminding ourselves that God's Word is a source not just of wisdom, but of great delight. Here's how the psalmist said it. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. What does he lift his hands to? Or how about Psalm 56, where it says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? How does he know not to be afraid? Because God's word has given him that assurance, and so he praises God's word. Commenting on the distinction that some people try to make between God and his word, Matt Smithhurst said, if I started yawning every time my wife talks, it wouldn't satisfy her to hear, oh sweetie, I don't care much about your words, I care about you. See, delighting ourselves in God means delighting ourselves in his word. You want to become wise, you have to look in the right place. Third thing you need to become wise. You've got to know why you need it. So so why is it so important to become wise? Why do we need wisdom? Is it just so that we can think of ourselves as wise and not foolish? Is it so that other people can look at us and think, oh, that person is really wise? I think the passage directs us to at least three reasons why we need wisdom. The first one is because life is filled with Columbia researcher Sheena Iyengar has found that the average person makes about 70 conscious decisions every day. Think about that for a minute. That adds up to 25,500 decisions a year. Over 70 years, that's 1,788,500 decisions. Albert Camus said, life is a sum of all your choices. Right, so put those 1,788,500 choices together. That's who you are. 
And we make decisions about everything, from what we will wear to what we'll eat to who we'll spend time with. And some of our decisions are obviously more consequential than others. I mean, the decision of what color socks to wear is not as consequential as the decision we might make about whether or not to take on consumer debt or who it is that we might marry. There's some weightier decisions for us to make. Because we are faced with so many decisions, we're in desperate need of God's wisdom. Listen again to verse 9 tells us about the benefit of God's wisdom. It says, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. See, wisdom will help you know where the good paths are. Verse 10 then tells us how this works. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Notice that wisdom is internal. Wisdom enters your heart. Knowledge is in your soul. I don't know who coined the phrase, but this internalized wisdom functions like what we mean when we say moral compass or when we refer to a person's moral compass. If you have a strong moral compass, you know which way is true north. That's how wisdom works. You know which way is up and which way is down. You know which path you ought to take and which one you ought to avoid. When you're faced with its decisions, you're not sort of left to guess. You have a clear sense of direction. I know what's right. Knowledge enters your heart. The Bible's prescription for transformation is not behavior modification. It's part of the reason that we don't equate wisdom with just information transfer or the accumulation of intellectual knowledge. The Bible's prescription for transformation is a transformation of the heart that it works on us from the inside out. This actually ties in with the last point about God's Word being the source of wisdom. You find wisdom in God's Word, but just reading the Bible will not make you wise. The New Testament tells us that we are to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly said to you before that there's a difference between getting into God's Word and getting God's Word into you. When you internalize this wisdom, when you internalize God's Word, it does its work. It permeates every aspect of your being, your thoughts, your decisions, all of it. So internalizing it helps us in so many ways, but one of the ways it helps us is with decision-making. As you read through this passage, you will find the mention of paths and ways numerous times. Look, the world is a complex place. You come to lots of forks in the road, lots of points of decision. I either have to go left or I have to go right. Wisdom helps us understand which path we ought to take because it knows where each path leads. Second reason we need wisdom. Because we're constantly bombarded with competing One of the themes in the opening nine chapters of Proverbs is that we need to learn to listen to the right voices. Just think back to the voices that we've already heard from in chapter 1. Verse 8 of that chapter says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. See, parents have their best, their, their children's best interests in mind, and those are some of the voices we ought to listen to. Verse 10 of chapter 1 tells us about another voice. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, 
Come with us. Let's lie in wait for blood. Go along with them. See, that's a voice we're supposed to reject. And then Andy led us through a study of the last part of Proverbs chapter 1 last week, and that passage began by saying, Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. Part of what the opening chapter of Proverbs teaches us is that we need to make a conscious decision about who we will listen to. Here in chapter 2, that theme continues, and there's two specific voices that we are warned about here. We're told how wisdom can protect us from both. So verses 11 to 15 say this. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness Rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So the the first voice we need protection from is the voice of men with perverted speech. Now what does that mean exactly? This is about more than just coarse joking or locker room talk, though that would fit under the umbrella of perverted speech. Perverted speech manifests itself in a number of different ways. It is that which perverts or distorts what is right or righteous. It seeks to normalize that which ought not to be considered normal. And this is everywhere around us. I read a a recent article on CBC's website with this headline. Polyamory during a pandemic? It's complicated. The article began like this. I'm reading from the article. In mid-May, Paula Hughes was ready to bring her boyfriend into her social bubble. But first, the 40-year-old bookkeeper had to discuss her plans with her long-term partner, his spouse, and the spouse's partner, who happens to be Hughes' soon-to-be ex-husband. The four of them are polyamorous and share a home in Surrey, B.C. Now she wanted to bring a fifth person into the mix. And I would say the article got one thing right. It is complicated. Now, maybe that seems like an extreme example, and I would concede that, but it is hard to avoid the constant refrain of perverted speech from those who have forsaken the paths of uprightness. You can call me puritanical or whatever you want, but so much of the modern entertainment industry is built off of that which perverts or distorts God's design. All sorts of relationships and practices are normalized that ought not to be normalized. You might think you're immune to being influenced by all of that. I mean, what effect could a steady diet of consuming all that culture serves up possibly have on you? We're not immune. So we have to make a conscious decision about which voice or voices we will listen to. Will we listen to the voice of God? Will we take the wisdom and knowledge that come from His mouth Or will we be shaped by the perverted speech of those who have left paths of uprightness? The second voice we need protection from is found in verses 16 to 19. It says, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life. 
This is the voice of the forbidden woman. And notice that her voice is described as smooth speech. There's an enticement that comes through what she says. Now the forbidden woman or the adulteress is going to make her appearance again in lengthy sections in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7. And the fact that these opening chapters devote so much time and attention to this theme should alert us to the fact that this is a major pitfall. Just this week, I learned of another colleague in ministry who threw the whole thing away because he could not restrain his passion. As an aside, the fact that Solomon repeatedly tells his son to stay away from the adulteress does not mean that the Bible views adultery as a female problem, as if women are the enticers and men are the victims. Solomon is exhorting his son, and so it's natural that this is how he references it. I've been in vocational ministry for close to 25 years now, and sadly, I have seen far too many men and women who have done exactly what the forbidden woman is described as doing here in verse 17, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Notice that what is described is both a breaking of her commitment to her spouse her covenant or her relationship with God. When you step back and look at things from a distance, wisdom will help you see that all of life is a package. You can't sort of compartmentalize it and live as if, you know, my relationship with God is okay, even if I'm unfaithful with my spouse or to my spouse. We're told here that wisdom will protect us, guard us. Part of the way it does that is by helping us see the inevitable outcome for those who choose that path. Listen again to verses 18 and 19. For her house sinks down to death. Her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of her Now you might think you're the exception to the rule. Get caught never be found out, and even if you do, it's no big deal. That's a lie of the devil. It's no different than him telling Eve, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods. This brings us back to the reminder that we're constantly bombarded with different voices. The voice of wisdom calls us and tells us, stick to the path of life, stay on it. So many of the other voices we hear are just variations of the serpent telling us, leave the path of wisdom. Experience all that you're missing out on. And we need to be careful to hear these enticements for what they are and to reject them outright. The complacency of fools will destroy them. So don't take any of this lightly. Third reason we need wisdom is because it has immediate and eternal benefits. Chapter 2 ends with a promise and a warning. Verse 20 says, So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the path of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. The wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous rooted out of it. There's a, a present and a future dimension to what is said here. 
The present aspect is that if we follow wisdom's path, we will experience all the blessings that come along the way. There's a a present blessing or reward that we can expect because we attain wisdom. We'll look at some of that next week in more depth as we get into chapter 3, but these verses also highlight the future aspect. It says the upright will inhabit the land, the wicked will be taken from the land. So what does that mean? How do we understand that? Well, we just finished a series in Genesis where one of the promises we looked at, or one of the promises given to Abraham, revolved around the possession of the land. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that theme of land is one of the most prominent themes in it. Israel is promised the land. They eventually possess the land. Then they're temporarily taken out of the land and into exile. Then they return to the land, and, but never quite fully possess it. It's so much of the story revolves around the land. Are they in it? Are they out of it? The land wasn't just any land. It was the land of Canaan, the promised land. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. So to be in the land... To possess it meant that you would enjoy all of the blessings of the promised land. And Israel's possession of the land was dependent on their obedience to God's, lo- to God's law. Their continuation in the land was conditional on their obedience. Their hope was tied to their possession or non-possession of a particular piece of geography. Every Jewish person who read Psalm 37, or the promise of Psalm 37, but the meek will inherit the land, they knew exactly what that meant. One day we will possess this land, this parcel of land, Canaan. But the gospel tells us a better story. Jesus comes along and says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, all of it. The whole earth is our possession in Christ. But how do we get in on that inheritance? Is it conditional on our righteousness? Is that how we get the land and remain in the land? If it is, we are all in trouble. I came across a great summation of the competing voices we often hear around our situation. The world says, you are your best day. Satan says, you are your worst day. Jesus says, you are my best day. Just just think about that for a minute. See, the world tells us, look, you're your best day. You are that version of yourself that you imagine yourself to be, right? You're the person who helped out at that soup kitchen one. You're the person who's given money to charitable causes. You know, you're the one who who has all this virtue. Satan tells us you're your worst day. All your failures, all your mistakes, that's who you are. Jesus tells us we are his best day. On what basis do we get in? On the inheritance? It's on the basis of Christ and his righteousness. We've been, I, I've mentioned this verse already a couple of times in this series. The verse we ought to commit to memory and think about. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 36. Because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification. Christ is our righteousness. His righteousness. We get in on the land. 
Father, let's pray together. Father, we do want to thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your word that is clear to us. We thank you for the wisdom that it contains, the protection that it gives us, the counsel that we find in the midst of difficult circumstances. You tell us just keep being faithful. And Lord, we pray that we would grow in wisdom. We pray we'd have a hunger for it and not be complacent about it. God, we thank you most of all for Jesus. Thank you that he has become wisdom to us. He has become our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. All that we have is found in him. And we pray our hearts would be filled with that information. We pray we would live out of the overflow.